好。What's all this for? Self-defense. Not that I think I'll need it. He'll be dead before nightfall. Who will be? Dandridge. I'm waiting for the guy he lives with to leave, and then I'm gonna go next door and find his coffin and pound this to his heart. That's murder, Charlie. You can't murder a vampire, Amy. They're dead. Remember? Listen, listen, I just taped this. Amy, what are we gonna do? This is just like Fright Night. Now for the two o'clock news. Another body of a young woman was discovered early this morning in back of the Sheridan Mall. You see that? I don't have any choice. Somebody has to stop him. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Dana Buckler Show. I am joined by my regular co-host, Ashley. How are you today? I'm doing great. Excellent. Welcome back. It's uh, It's been a little while since we last chatted. This is going to be part one of, I'm not even sure how many episodes, as many as it takes for us to sort of look at and dissect the evolution of the vampire film starting in the 1980s. But, of course, The Legend of the Vampire stretches back hundreds of years. So before we get into the subject of today's movie, I thought we'd start with a little bit of a discussion about the vampire lore in general. So, Ashley, I'll turn it over to you. Yeah, so uh, it's been great, Dana, because we've had about a month break between our last deep dive, which was the um, teen sex comedy retrospective. And so I've been able to to dig through and do a lot of, of research on this, which has been really fun because vampires have always been a, um, I don't know, a favorite of mine. And, and so basically, the history of the vampire goes all the way back to Mesopotamia and ancient Greece. And there's been stories of bloodsuckers or the walking dead that looked undead. And those can be found all throughout history, through all different types of religions and throughout all different types of societies. But it wouldn't truly be until Bram Stoker's Dracula, which was published in 1897, that we would get the picture of the vampire as we know it today. Uh, Stoker's novel was about a count that was moving from Transylvania to London and the characters surrounding that move, most particularly his lawyer that was handling the move for him. And in creating Dracula, Stoker was influenced by many stories. And some say that they included those of the real life Vlad the Impaler, as well as multiple legends from Transylvania that spoke of the vampire, this creature that only walked at night that was undead and fed only on blood. It should be noted, though, that a lot of people don't realize that Stoker was not the first to publish a successful vampire novel. A century earlier, in 1797, Johann Wolfgang van Gogh published The Bride of Corinth. And additionally, in 1871, Sheridan Le Fanu published Carmilla about a lesbian vampire, uh, which is actually a really fantastic book. And further, John Polidori created the idea of vampire as aristocrat, which Stoker would base his Count Dracula on, in Polidori's novel The Vampire in 1819. Uh, but despite above all those above precursors, Stoker's novel 
is the one read most often since um, it became kind of the most popular in pop culture even then through to this day. And it's had its hand in shaping modern vampire culture as we know it. So from vampires' lack of reflection to the fear of crucifixes to how they're turned to how they're killed, Stoker's tale basically carved out not just the most famous of vampires, Dracula himself, but the first set of quote-unquote rules that all other vampire storytellers would play by in some way for, for years to come. And now, of course, the rules haven't all exactly remained the same. And as we move through this, you know, seven, eight-part series, we're going to see that each iteration of vampire kind of changes some. From Buffy the Vampire Slayer's vampires disintegrating when staked to the absolute horror show that is the sparkling vampire in the Twilight series. It's basically the person that creates the vampire is going to create the story. And more so, vampires like other horror movie staples like zombies and werewolves, they change based on the world that's currently absorbing their story. So vampires and their legends kind of become a reflection of the people and society that's consuming those legends, which in my opinion is one of the reasons why they've stuck around and have been so pervasive since the, you know, the 17, 1800s. And to that end, I wanted, as we start today, to share kind of a crazy story that I found in all of this research. So in 2002, Malawi, which um, is a landlocked country in Africa, was actually in an all-out vampire panic. Uh, Villagers believed that their government was actually colluding with vampires and offering them for food and blood sacrifices in return for items that would benefit government officials. So the population of Malawi fled the cities and they went out into these areas, the suburbs and into the more rural parts of the country and they camped out and they prepared to be eaten. They prepared to be literally devoured by this concept of a vampire that they believed to exist and that was going to come. And interestingly enough, the same time period was a time of huge amounts of starvation in the country, a tremendous AIDS crisis that had resurfaced and lots of other terrible issues that were plaguing them, including government corruption. And so thus it was right for this vampire legend, this modern day vampire legend to take hold. So as we begin today, I think it's important for us as we we talk about this through our series to consider that vampires, in my opinion, reflect these fears that we all possess about the worst that there can be in people, starting with Stoker through on the Malawi conflict, even today into 2019. Because vampires, they're ghosts and they're undead. But unlike, you know, these wispy, you know, spirits of the paranormal, the vampire is fully corporal. It can be seen, it can be touched, and it can be feared in a way that's a little bit more realized than its spiritual counterparts. They're the most terrifying because they were us and they aren't anymore. And more importantly, they are those that feed on what they were. They they cannibalize us themselves and they destroy us and there's really not much that we can do about it. And, you know, there's a researcher, his name is David Skull, and all he does is research vampires. And he speaks about the Malawi incident and others all throughout history, that in times of mass social upheaval, vampire legends seem to reassert themselves. You know, from explanation in times of the plague, to fears related to the Christian belief in transubstantiation and the transference of blood of God to man, vampire legends find themselves, again, in all aspects of human history, across culture, across religion, and across time. And they're long-lasting because they're deeply connected to these great fears of the human existence, this fear of our fellow man betraying us and worse, are betraying ourselves. So I personally think that 
vampires are something that are really interesting because of their relationship to social issues. But we're going to pick up in the 80s. And and I think that the type of vampire we're going to talk about today with Fright Night is very different because it was a vampire legend in the 1980s. And as we begin to talk about them through time, I want us to kind of constantly return to that. Because when vampire culture changes, the culture itself is changing. And and so I think that's going to be really interesting. But before we start, I wanted to ask, Dana, are you a big fan of vampires? And if so, what do you what do you like about them well i think the my evolution as far as how i feel about vampires has changed drastically in the past 10 to 15 years now i a child of the 1980s and a lot of the movies that we're going to be discussing are films that i grew up on for me and i don't want to get too much into it because i think we're going to be covering this over this over this series but i can tell you that growing up vampires for me were something to be feared they were something that i was terrified of through a lot of different movies. Uh, whereas now I feel like the the entire sort of vampire lore has, has drastically shifted into something that I don't recognize anymore. But I don't want to say more than that because it's it's something we're going to get into. But as a whole, I, I've always found the vampire lore fascinating. And at the same time, when I was a kid, I used to wonder if they were real, if vampires were something real. And there was, you know, after watching certain movies, like My Best Friend is a Vampire movie we're not going to be talking about. I always said, you know, you know, when I was a kid, it'd be kind of cool to be a vampire. You know, like, so I, ha- I, ha- I have a lot of mixed emotions about them. But a- as a whole, I was, when I was younger, very, very scared of them. What about you? See, I think that's interesting. So when I was a little girl, and we'll, we'll talk about a little bit a little bit later about my my fear of Fright Night um, from when I was young. But once I became, I don't know, maybe 12 or 13, I, I have always been obsessed with vampires. You know, your typical horror movie tropes, you know, your Frankenstein, the mummies, the, the zombies and the vampires. Vampires are by far my favorite. And I've always been very drawn to them, not because I'm afraid of them, but because I love the possibility that they they represent, you know, this ability to be beyond human. Um, you know, the the idea that it's a human experience that's exponentially experienced in immortality, I've always really been drawn to. And um, obviously, we won't get into it now. But you know, I'm a huge fan of the Anne Rice novels. Um, that is my favorite iteration of vampire. And I have always, I mean, I would become a vampire in a heartbeat. Like I would have absolutely no problem. <laughs> like, it probably says a lot about me and my own person, personal, like moral compass being broken. But like, I would immediately allow a vampire to turn me, especially if it was the Anne Rice type vampire. So I've always been really fascinated by up into like the Twilight vampires. I've been really fascinated by their just I mean, there's just a general mystery to them and darkness to them that I've always found really attractive and really appealing. And and that began with Fright Night, um, which we're going to talk about today. That was the first vampire movie I ever saw. It introduced me to, I I didn't even know who Dracula was. That's what introduced me to vampires. And then, of course, began to uncover the others over time. But I I love them. I love vampires. And and they're some of my very favorite films. And certainly some of my favorite literature is all all vampire related. Well, I remember having very long discussions with friends of mine about the pros and cons of becoming a vampire. And these discussions would happen when I was a kid, when I was a teenager, even in my early 20s. And especially during my uh, my days as a uh, as a nightclub DJ and a rave DJ, I used to say, hey, you know what? Can't go out during the day. That's all right. I'm up all night anyway. No problem. Mm-hmm. So uh, I'll, I'll pose the question to you. Pros and cons of being a vampire? 
Yeah, I mean, I think the pros, I mean, immortality, I think would be great, um, especially immortality captured at, you know, when you're in your prime. I mean, I don't think I'd want to be turned into a vampire at like 70, right? You know, but like at 35, I think it could still work. I'm not, I'm, I don't have too many crow's feet yet, right? So it would still work. I also think a big pro of it is is the nighttime thing. I am not really a uh, a sunlight type person. Um, I've talked before about how pale I am. I already have the power of a vampire. And so I burn really easily. And I, I don't really like to be outside during the day. Um, I'm not a morning person. I much prefer to be up all night and at night. I would enjoy that. Um, of course, your negatives. I mean, you know, the blood thing, it's kind of gross. Um, maybe it wouldn't be when you actually were a vampire. And I mean, also killing people. I mean, sure, there's that that whole aspect. And, and I think the biggest complication would be um, who you're turned with, you know, because if you wind up with somebody or with like a vampire nest that, you know, you don't like, you're stuck with them for a really long time. And, you know, having to watch like your family and stuff die, I think that would be really, that would be complicated. But uh, I think there's a lot more pros than than cons for me. I mean, what about for you? Well, I'll, I'll pose this question to the listeners out there. Go ahead and tweet at us. Let us know the pros and cons of being a vampire. And then I have this question. You mentioned you wouldn't want to be turned into a vampire at age 70. Mm -hmm. One has to imagine that you are reinvigorated with energy and stamina and and all the all the things that come with uh with being undead and immortal. I would hope that would be the case. Yeah, yeah, but I mean, I guess it depends on what type of vampire lore you're being turned into, right? Because like if we're in the Anne Rice lore, you're captured however you are. So you're a more beautiful and, and actually that's most vampire lore. Like you're a mo- more beautiful version of your human self, but you're still captured. I mean, you know, if you're a child, you're you're turned and you always stay a child or if you're turned, you know, at 18, you always look 18. So that would be my problem is, you know, I, I can't imagine being turned, you know, 70 or 80 when I already look 70 or 80. And sure, being reinvigorated would be great, but I wouldn't want to look. I want to be immortal, you know, looking haggard for the rest of my eternity. I mean, I don't I don't know. Maybe that's super vain, but I just I think that would take some of the fun out of it. Fair enough. All right. Well, before we talk about Fright Night, I just want to briefly talk a little bit about vampire films as a whole. And, you know, it's really hard to wrap your head around just how many vampire movies have been made. By my estimations and my research, and this is just a rough guess, there's somewhere in the neighborhood of more than 500 vampire films and counting. Now, from the beginning of movies, the legend of Creatures of the Night have been brought to the big screen. A French movie called Les Menons du Diable is an 1890 three-minute-long silent film, which supposedly is the first to capture vampires on film. Throughout the silent film era, we had a ton of vampire films, everything from The Vampire's Trail to The Grip of the Vampire, Vampires of the Night, The Vampire's Tower, Save from the Vampire, The Vampire's Church, Was She a Vampire, Kiss of the Vampire, Master Vampire, A Night of Horror, A Vampire Out of Work. A Village of Vampires, The Beloved Vampire, etc., etc. Now, Ashley, as you mentioned, the most famous vampire is that of Count Dracula. And the first known on-screen appearance of the Prince of Darkness was Dracula, a lost silent Russian film. The second appearance would be Dracula's death in 1921, which was an unlicensed Hungarian adaption. And unlicensed is very key here. It is also considered to be one of the first known appearances of Dracula, and the film has since been lost in its release. Now, in 1922, a small German film studio produced another unlicensed version of Dracula. The movie was called Nosferatu, and it told the story of Thomas Hutter, who was sent by his employer to Transylvania to assist a mysterious figure, Count Orlock, in a real estate purchase. Now, I won't say more than that about the plot of the film, because I genuinely feel like everybody needs to seek this movie out. But I will say this, Bram Stoker's estate 
Gate was none too happy about the production of this film and sued the filmmakers and the production studio and were successful in their lawsuit. The court ruled that all existing copies of Nosferatu ceased to exist and they were ordered all to be destroyed. Now, thankfully, a few prints did survive, and the film did receive a re-release years later, and the movie is widely considered one of the best vampire films ever made. The movie was also credited with introducing sunlight as a method in which vampires can die. 1931 would see the first major American vampire film produced, Universal's Dracula, starring Bela Lugosi. This was a hugely successful movie that kick-started what could arguably be known as the first shared cinematic universe. This franchise would see the likes of Frankenstein, The Wolfman, The Mummy, and others in their own respective movies and crossover films. Now, I don't want to spend too much time talking about Dracula movies as a whole because Ashley and I have 1992's Dracula slated as one of the movies we'll be covering in this vampire retrospective. But I will make a couple points of interest. In 1958, Hammer Films released their version of Dracula starring Christopher Lee and Peter Cushing. This movie kicked off another very successful franchise. Throughout the 1950s, 60s, and 70s, the majority of vampire films were regulated to B-movie stature. Think films like The Kiss of the Vampire, The Velvet Vampire, Adam, Aged Vampire, and Adam is spelled A-T-O-M, Curse of the Undead, Terror in the Crypt, and Planet of the Vampires. The majority of these films were made on the cheap and would turn a small profit at best. Now, this is not to say that big movie studios did not toss their hat in the ring from time to time with movies like The Omega Man and House of Dark Shadows, a film released by MGM based on the popular daytime soap opera, Dark Shadows. Even the godfather of the zombie genre, George A. Romero, brought an interesting take to the vampire film, and I'm saying vampire film in air quotes, with 1977's Martin. The 1980s would see the biggest resurgence in popular vampire films. However, to kick off our look at the genre, we first have to go back to the year 1960 and look at not just one of the best horror movies of all time, but indeed one of the best movies of all time, and that is Alfred Hitchcock's seminal classic, Psycho. A very low-budget film that thoroughly subverted expectations of moviegoers at the time. It was black and white, it bucked the established code of filmmaking with its gratuitous violence, and contained a couple of the greatest plot twists in film history. Psycho has become a beloved classic. Now keep in mind, these days, if a unique and original movie came out of nowhere, and it became a huge hit. Immediately, the studios would greenlight a sequel or sequels or a prequel or a shared cinematic universe. They would milk the property for all it's worth. But Psycho came out in 1960, a period of time when sequels just didn't happen. And no one would even dare to attempt to do a sequel to, to an Alfred Hitchcock movie, at least not when he was alive. Now, sadly, Hitchcock did pass away in 1980. And by that time, Universal Pictures held the rights to Psycho. Only after seeking the blessing from Hitchcock's daughter did they move forward with a planned sequel. When the producers reached out to Anthony Perkins, the actor who played Norman Bates in the original Psycho, he initially showed no interest in reprising the role. However, things drastically changed for Perkins after he read the screenplay by up-and-coming writer Tom Holland. Perkins immediately signed on to reprise the role. Psycho 2 was released in 1983 and generated favorable reviews and a tidy box office return of $34 million on a $5 million budget. And overnight, Tom Holland had become one of the hottest writers in town. Now, Holland was born in Poughkeepsie, New York. And after high school, he attended college at Northwestern University for a year before transferring to UCLA and graduating in 1970. Now, after graduation, Holland began acting and nabbed several bit parts and small roles in film and television. Holland also began screenwriting in the late 1970s and managed to sell a few scripts. But like I mentioned, it was Psycho 2 that really helped cement his writing career. 
After the release of Psycho 2, Holland began working on a script called Cloak and Dagger. It was while he was working on this project that he began thinking about another story. Now, here's the thing. Tom Holland is a huge fan of horror movies, and he began to ponder the idea of what would happen if a teenager obsessed with horror movies began to believe that his next-door neighbor was a vampire, and his friends and family didn't believe him. And in essence, he began to think about a, a boy who cried wolf story. However, he was somewhat stuck in a rut on just how to flush out this story. He couldn't find the hook. He kept asking himself, what would I do? What would I do? Who would I call? Whose help would I seek out? After more than a year of working out the plot, it hit him. He would seek out the help of an expert. Inspired by all the late-night horror movie hosts that would introduce B-horror movies, Holland came up with the character Peter Vincent. Now, the name was a play on two horror movie icons, Vincent Price and Peter Cushing. With his hook now in place, Holland set out to write a screenplay. He churned out the first draft of Fright Night in just three weeks. Now, what was unique about this particular screenplay was that Tom Holland wasn't writing the story just to sell it to a studio. No, this was going to be his directorial debut, and because he had built just enough credit with his previous screenwriting, the studio executives at Columbia Pictures greenlit the project with a $9 million budget, which I have to be honest with you, in 1985 was a pretty modest budget for a horror film. To put things in perspective, just the year before, one of the highest grossing horror films of that year was A Nightmare on Elm Street, and that was made for just $1.5 million. Now, one of the key components to Fright Night and what makes it so great is the characters. And for Holland, casting the film was essential. Peter Vincent, the character that inspired the entire story, was written specifically with Vincent Price in mind. However, to Tom Holland's dismay, Price turned down the role, citing that he had had his run with horror movies. Now, it was an executive at Columbia Pictures that had suggested Roddy McDowell, a beloved character actor who Holland was actually familiar with since McDowell had a role in a Tom Holland written film, Class of 84. Roddy McDowell absolutely fell in love with the character and told Holland he would love to do the part. For the role of the sinister vampire Jerry Danrich, the offer went out to Chris Sarandon, an actor who was nominated for Best Supporting Actor in the first film he ever appeared in with 1975's Dog Day Afternoon. Initially hesitant to even consider the role, Sarandon became very intrigued after reading the script, citing that this particular character was far more flushed out than any typical horror movie antagonist. Still feeling a little bit reluctant, it did take a couple of meetings between Sarandon and Holland before he finally agreed to take the part. For the role of Charlie Brewster, our hero of the story, several actors auditioned for the part, including Charlie Sheen. However, casting director Jackie Birch remembered auditioning an actor by the name of William Ragsdale for the movie Mask a part that would eventually go to Eric Stoltz. She recommended Ragsdale to Holland, and after several auditions, he landed the role. For the part of the over-the-top evil Ed, actor Stephen Joffreys landed the role. Although he initially believed that he was going in to audition for the role of Charlie Brewster, he was somewhat surprised to find out that he landed the part of evil Ed instead. Now, according to Holland in several interviews, the hardest role for him to cast was that of girl next door, Amy Peterson. Now, that, of course, changed when he met and auditioned Amanda Bierce. Ironically, Bierce was in her early 20s and was the oldest of the three, quote, teenage characters. Filming for Fright Night took place on location from December 1984 to February 1985. Now, one of the things I found really interesting while researching this film was that Columbia Pictures, the studio behind the film's production, was so wrapped up in the John Travolta, Jamie Lee Curtis film Perfect 
that they never even once visited the set of Fright Night. And Holland, the first-time director, was left to his own devices to make the movie as he saw fit. And one of the things that Holland credits the success of the film for was he was given enough time to do full rehearsals for every scene. What would you do if you accidentally discovered the house next door was occupied by something not human? Something horrifying. Something unspeakably evil. No one believes you. Mom, I didn't have a nightmare. Not your mom. They did kill a girl over there. Not your girlfriend. Charlie, is this some sort of a trick to get me back? Not even the police. Look, I know it's crazy. I know that, but look, Lieutenant! It knows that you know. You'll do anything to protect yourself. But it will do anything to protect its secret. Fright Night. If you love being scared, this could be the night of your life. Released on August 2nd, 1985, in a little over 1,500 theaters, Fright Night went on to gross a very respectable $25 million at the box office. The film garnered very positive reviews, given the subject matter of the movie, with some of the strongest accolades going to that of vampire Chris Sarandon. However, one of the strongest legacies that I think Fright Night has left was that it truly began a resurgence in vampire films, one of that is still going strong to this day. So, Ashley... Before I get into my thoughts on the film, I, you mentioned that this was a film, this was really your first introduction to the vampire lore. First, and you said this movie terrified you. So talk a little, just a little bit about your first time seeing this movie. And then I'm going to give you the surprising reaction I had watching this movie. Yeah, so uh, this was actually the first uh, horror movie I, I ever saw, not just a vampire movie. My dad has always been a big fan of B-horror movies, you know, things like The Evil Dead, right? And so when I was little, he he loved this movie immediately when it came out in 85, but I was two when it came out. And so when I was, I guess I was about seven, so it must have been like 90 or 91 when I was eight. My dad was like, oh, there's this great comedy because he only saw the the funny parts of this movie. You know, it wasn't scary for him. He just thought it was funny. So we sat down to watch it and I was terrified by the concept of the vampire because I didn't even know what a vampire was, I don't think, before seeing this film. And so my mother and father got into a huge fight about this because I, this is no lie, for a year after I saw this movie, I slept with a thing of garlic in my bed <laughs> and I slept with the covers around my neck. Like I would wrap them around my neck at night because I convinced myself if it was wrapped, like the vamp I would at least feel them pulling it away, right? So I could wake up and hit them with the garlic. But I did. I slept with a little, you know, one little thing, one bulb of of garlic in my bed. I mean, I was so frightened by just the idea that something could could come in while I was, you know, so that very like Nosferatu type of vampire, you know, the, sh the the vampire in the shadows type thing. I mean, that really, really scared me. I was I was really frightened by Chris Sarandon's character. And, and I don't know if it was so much him, but just what the concept of the vampire was. And so I did not see this movie again until I was in college because I had such a negative relationship with it when I was young. And of course, I had a much different opinion when I saw it in my in my 20s. But it did it really the vampire really freaked me. It really freaked me out. And my mom was was furious with my dad. And I actually didn't see another R rated movie until speed. That was the next R rated movie that I saw. 
Um, so it was a, a little while in between there because it, it affected me. It affected me so much. So do you remember the first time you saw it? Yeah, it was about a week ago. So, <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> so <laughs> I didn't know that. <laughs> so, so that's the thing. And I remember, let's see, 85, I would have been seven years old, I think. Yeah, I would have been seven years old. And this was a movie that was, was talked about, talked about amongst my friends, but it wasn't one that I think was even readily available at the video store in Canada where I was from. I remember catching glimpses of it on late night television. I distinctly remember before I, I sat down to watch this movie for this podcast, I distinctly remember the, the scene where Jerry bites the apple and throws it sort of in Charlie's direction. That's the only memory I had of this film. Wow. So you're going to lose some credibility there, Dana Buckler. <laughs> I know. I know. Listen, there's, there is a few movies that I just haven't seen. But th so that being said, how lucky am I? That I got to see this movie as a 40-year-old for the basically for the first time. Because I there were little bits and pieces and fragments of the film. So I sat down to watch this movie. I, I guess we had to push this back by a week. So two weeks ago, I, I watched it for the very first time. And I remember texting you and saying, mm -hmm. uh, oh, by the way, Fright Night is fucking awesome. You know, like, okay, so I just <laughs> – so I watched this – and I have a, a real knack for transporting myself – to time and place, meaning that I am able to block out everything that came out post Fright Night and put myself in the mindset of what it must have been like to go to the theater and see this in 1985, knowing that up until that point, there really hadn't been, with the exception of the Universal and the Hammer films, there really hadn't been the, that really pop culture in the zeitgeist vampire movie that had come out. I mean, there had been a few, The Omega Man with Charlton Heston, but I argue that that movie has not held up. I would invite, invite people to go check that out. I mean, if I remember correctly, the vampires are all wearing sunglasses. Like, it's pretty, it's a mediocre film, and I might catch some shit for that, but I'm just going to say that. So, that being said, I was able to transport myself to time and place watching this movie. And I can tell you right off the bat, things I absolutely love about it. The music. Brad Fidel, he had just come off scoring the Terminator the year before, and he had worked with James. He worked with James Cameron subsequently in Terminator Two and True Lies, and he does an electronic score. I mean, this is a sort of it almost has sort of a new wave edge, and I feel like Stranger Things does a nice homage to to the type of music that is featured in this film. And I was so just starstruck by Chris Sarandon, by Jerry Dandridge. This was one of, and I know I'm going to catch some shit for this, this is one of, one of the best vampires I've ever seen on screen. I thought he was so absolutely cool. And, oh, no. <laughs> and I don't think you and I are going to agree on this at all. Well, well you know, I wish – I wish I had a little bit of your power to forget kind of what's come after. And, and more so than that, I have a very difficult time sometimes going back and watching films from this time period and not being thrown off by very 80s filmmaking, mm. right? Like there was, there's a very distinct look to an 80s movie or to it. Like I talked about on the 20th Century Movie Club with like Stealing Beauty about how there's a very distinct 90s title sequence, you know, that I, I have trouble that throws me off. Um, I will say 
say this. I think the best thing about Fright Night, and for those of you who haven't seen it in a while, the the best thing about it is that it's such a wonderful homage to like the old school horror creature feature, right? Like, I mean, that holds up really well. You can tell that Holland and really his whole cast really respected that even back to like the Abbott and Costello days. Like, you know, there's a lot of that in this film, you know, like Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein. You know, there's a lot of that type of comedy in here. And and I like that. I, I like that honest and, you know, like even just the tribute with Peter Vincent's character, you know, the fact that it's an homage to horror icons, you know, Peter Cushing, um, who played, you know, Dr. Van Helsing and all the, the Dracula movies and Vincent Price. I mean, I think that all of that still works in a really nice way. And and also, I I think we have to put ourselves back in 85. Um, There's this great line in the movie that Peter Vincent's character says, where he says that your generation is much more interested in ski masks, I'm I'm sorry, in virgins being slashed by men in ski masks. And that's such a great line with what has happened by the time this movie comes out with like, you know, the Halloween franchise and all the slasher movies and Wes Craven's come on the scene with House on the Left, you know, I'm sorry, Last House on the Left, uh, you know, in the 70s. And so that kind of the modern day slasher film has started to take hold by the time this movie came out, which changed horror. I mean, we've talked about that before in this podcast with the Exorcist 3 episode. I mean, the slasher movie changed horror films. And and I think that this was that, you know, that that last vestige of that creature feature coming back and saying, hey, this horror still works. This horror movie still deserves to be respected. And and like you said, resurge, you know, the vampire film, and we wouldn't have had the Lost Boys in the 80s. And I don't think we would have had the huge big budget production of Dracula in 92 and the adaptations of Anne Rice and eventually Charlene Harris and all of that that came about if we hadn't have had the success of Fright Night. So I, I mean, I don't think the importance of the film can be overstated. Um, but as far as Chris Sarandon, um, I think he's great in this movie. I think he's a great actor. But I, um, I just don't so much that came after him. I just prefer other vampires sure. to him. And and now I will say one thing I liked is, you know, his cape is replaced by like the white leather jacket. Like that I think is really cool and like very 80s in a, in a positive way. But I just don't buy him as this sexy vampire that he's supposed to be. Um, you know, that's seducing Amy and you know, seducing these people that I I just didn't, I don't know, I just I just didn't enjoy that. I enjoy the B movie aspects of it. But I I don't know if I enjoy the 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 type of vampire that that he is. Um, And and I'll just say one other I'll say one other thing. The other very 80s thing about this movie is the whole damsel in distress trope that was still such a big part of the 1980s horror films. Um, And they replicate that here. And I'm not a fan of Amy's character at at all. And I I really and I texted you this day and I really on rewatch preparing for this. I really hated Charlie. I hated his character so much um, in a 2019 rewatch. But the movie, though, I think it's super, super, super important. And if you're a fan of horror, and especially if you're a fan of vampires, this is a must watch because of its importance to the modern day, you know, vampire resurgence that we had starting in 85. So well, to touch on what you said first about sort of the homages that this film presents, and 
it, it, it was perfect. Like even the opening movie that Charlie is watching on his TV, that was, that was not a real movie. That was something that Holland had directed, you know, a couple buddies of him. And it, it sort of was very nostalgic for me because I remember that time period. I remember having a small TV in my room and only having three channels and, and, and having a, you know, a late night horror host presenting films like that. So I just love that. And a couple other things you, you mentioned in movies, very 80s. Of course, you know, I'm super nostalgic for practical effects and I'm super nostalgic for, for the way that, that movies looked back then in the 70s, 80s and early 90s. And, you know, I just, it just felt more, I felt like everything felt more real life. Not, not, not real life, but just everything felt like it was tactile and real sets and real production design and, you know, of course, over the top uh, special effects that especially t towards the end. And all of that really resonated with me. And again, I, I, I'll, I'll, it bears repeating, how lucky am I that I got to see this at 40? With, with knowing how much I love, you know, classic movies like this, this was, this was a real treat. Now, to just get back to Jerry Dandridge's character for a second, I'll slightly disagree with you that I, I just genuinely believe that he had this very worldly look about him. Like he, I think he just looked like, you know, he had been alive for, for maybe a couple hundred years and he was, he was very well tanned and very well manicured. <laughs> he was very well tanned and very well, you know, quaffed like his hair yeah, was yeah. very. <laughs> like I could see, I was very, like when he was on screen, I was very much like, oh, he's Fucking cool. I'm sorry. I just think, I think that's crazy, but I bought it. I, I definitely bought the character. You know, I think that's interesting. Um, you know, maybe, maybe my problem with it is this, you know, this, and, and a lot of this is because when it came out, right, it came out in 85 and maybe it would be different because it was, and I don't know if we're going to talk about the remake at all, but it was a little different in the remake that they updated. This was one of the only positive things I can say about the remake is they updated it in this way that, you know, in vampire lore now, and this really is due to Anne Rice, it, you know, vampires are very, they're very sexual, right? Like they're super sexual beings and that's part of their appeal to people, you know, reading about them and consuming literature and, and media about them. But it also is a lot with their mythology because they're supposed to be predators. And so there's that's how they attract their prey, meaning us is, you know, we find them attractive and that attraction is a sexual attraction. And it just bothered me that none of the guys in this movie were attracted to him in that way. And, you know, at least like with the update, you know, Colin, Colin Farrell is a beautiful man and a very much a 2011 beautiful man. And, you know, that was a little bit more clear that everyone was kind of attracted to him. And I just wish that I'm not saying Charlie had to like throw himself at him. But you know, the fact that it was just like only like this very binary, you know, he was seeking like this female, like he was attracting just the females. Like, I guess that's just because I prefer that other type of vampire. And that maybe maybe is what threw me what threw me off with him a little bit. And also just I just don't he's a little too tan for me. Vampires must be pale, Dana. They're dead. You know, they're supposed to be dead. But I did, but I did like that. And, and I, I love how B movie this is. You're talking about the practical effects. I mean, there's that scene because we don't want to, I know we don't ever want to give spoilers away, but like there's that scene where, you know, his hand turns into like his vampire hand, right? And I love the way that looked like that classic horror practical effect, B movie effect where he gets like the long fingernails and his hands all gnarled up. And, you know, that was great. I mean, that's the thing I love about B movies. Like, and I'm mentioned Evil Dead earlier. Evil Dead and Evil Dead 2 are two of my very favorite films of 
all time. And that's why I like the homage paid in like Cabin in the Woods so much to those movies, that B-movie type of effect. And this has that. And, and it's enjoyable. I mean, it is that that part of this film. And it's still funny. I mean, the script is a smart script still. The script holds up in a lot of ways in 2019. And it's funny. I laughed a lot. You know, and I enjoyed it. It's an enjoyable movie. It's not a scary movie. The You know, the the scenes are not scary kind of they're kind of gross which practical effects tends to tends to kind of for me you know lean more on the the grossness which i enjoy i like that kind of gore i think it's fun so um and i think it fits that that b-movie horror creature feature that they're they're trying to capture so i mean it it is it's very enjoyable I, i will say this that uh talking about charlie brewster for a moment if there was a frustrating part in the movie for me and i'm this is this is very very mild mild spoilers for the film because it happens rather early on in the film but i have to talk about about it is you know the basic premise of the film is that Jerry Dandridge has moved in next door and and there's you know news reports floating around that you know these women have gone missing and they've been found murdered and and Charlie begins to suspect that Jerry could be a vampire and he es- essentially establishes that nobody believes him except us the viewer and and we realize what Charlie's is actually seeing long story short there's a scene relatively early in the film where Jerry is over at Charlie's house He confronts him in his room and he basically says to Charlie, forget about me and I'll forget about you. That's the one part of the movie that really got me. I'm like, that's the moment where I'm going, you got it. Absolutely. No problem. 100%. I don't know who you are. I didn't see anything. I'm going to keep my windows closed from this point on. The blinds will be drawn. You'll never hear from me again, except Charlie decides to hit him, to stab him in the hand with a pencil. But anyway, so that was the one part that I was just like, no, no, no. And that's, I think that's the effectiveness of this film is I'm sitting in my couch going, just say yes, just say no problem. You got it. All right. He's giving you an out, which, which I found really fascinating about Jerry, because this is a guy who's probably killed hundreds, if not thousands of people. And the fact of the matter is that he's going to give this one kid a pass. Well, because he just doesn't want to deal with it. He's a smart guy. You know, he realizes, like, I got to live next to somebody. It might as well be somebody who knows what I am so I don't have to deal with it anymore. You know, I don't have to hide it, basically. And one of the the things I thought was so cool about Jerry throughout the entire – up until the very end of the film is just how confident he was the entire time. Like, kid – I've dealt with shit like this for hundreds of years. I am not worried about you. Up until the very end, like he is never in a sense, there's never a sense of dread about him. He's always just so calm and cool. And I just, that just really resonated with me. You know, it, it doesn't. And I'll say one thing. I mean, because I, we talked at the, be- when I was talking at the beginning, I was talking about like the the different iterations of, of vampire lore. And, you know, this is your typical, you know, they hate holy water. They have no reflection. You know, they can be staked. I mean, it's your, it's your classic vampire lore. But one thing I think is really interesting about Fright Night and the, you know, the contribution it makes to quote unquote vampire rules is there's this little bit of twist, like with the crucifix, you know, the fact that the person holding the crucifix actually has to have faith in the religious iconography in order for it to work. So like, if you're, you know, if you're my, like my husband is, is an agnostic, like if he held a crucifix up to a vampire, we'd be screwed because he doesn't believe in it. Right. And so I, I like that twist because it opens up this door to really any religious iconography could be, you know, used against the, 
the vampires. And I did think that was pretty neat. Like that's a, I mean, I don't, I mean, and, and you know, people, you know, that are listening, listeners, let us know on Twitter if I'm wrong, but I don't know of any other real, you know, vampire lore that has that little bit of a twist. And and I appreciated that, yeah. you know, that um, Holland and, and his team kind of created something new, you know, which I think is an interesting, you know, because the whole thing is the boy who cried wolf, right? So it's faith, whether or not you have faith in Charlie and faith in what he believes about, you know, his next door neighbor. And I love that they make that play even with, you know, being able to to attack them, that you have to have faith not only in who he is and what he is, but in what you're using in order to to fight against him. I thought that was great. All right, Ashley, what we're going to be doing on this particular series is we're going to be personally rating each film. We're going to we're going to assign each vampire film that we talk about a rating and we're going to be calling it a stake through the heart. How many stakes through the heart would you give this with 10 being the best, zero being the worst? So I'll turn it over to you. Now, I know that there's several more movies to go and sometimes it's hard to, to assign a grade to the first film because you're kind of setting a trend from that point on. But if you were to say how many stakes through the heart would you give 1985's Fright Night, what would your answer be? Sure. I mean, I, I kind of want to to grade them all in isolation, right? Because I think they deserve that because it's very difficult. Like with any film, it's very difficult to compare them. So I think I, I will approach it and kind of rating them in isolation. And I would say Fright Night for me because of the importance of it, not just to the vampire movie, but also to just the horror in general, especially horror in the 80s. Because of that, for me, it weighs, you know, in the balance and kind of makes up for some of the shortcomings I feel that it has in a 2019 rewatch. So I would say I'd say a seven. Okay, I'd say, you know, Kills them still, but doesn't quite annihilate them in the way that maybe others do. I'm going to grade this movie. I'm going to give this eight stakes through the heart. And the reason for that is because I find that it, it, it follows all the traditional vampire lore that we've set up. It establishes a, a couple new things, which I thought was a lot of fun. I thought the lead antagonist, the, the main vampire, was captivating. And for that reason, and, and, and the movie was a lot of fun, and I got to see it just a couple weeks ago for the first time. So it's very fresh on my mind. And I just had a great time throughout the entire film. And, I, and also because the movie really went in directions that I didn't expect it to go. I, when the movie first started, it, I really felt like the story was going to be confined to just the, ha the house, the two houses involved, Charlie's house and Jerry's house. And there's an entire scene that takes place somewhere else, which I'm not going to talk about, which is totally 80s, the entire scene. And I thought it was fantastic. And so uh, for me, I'm going to give this one eight stakes through the heart out of 10. I am going to briefly talk about my experiences watching Fright Night Part 2 a week ago. I looked everywhere for this movie. I went on the Just Watch app, the app that we use for the 20th Century Movie Club. I plugged it in and I expected it would have some type of the movies available here or there or wherever. Couldn't find it anywhere. On a whim, I typed in... Fright Night Part 2 on YouTube, and it actually had the entire movie available. And it wasn't edited for television. I will say, disappointingly, though, it was in the old pan and scan format. So instead of having the black bars on top, they were on the side. But that doesn't matter, because I watched about 30 minutes of the movie and said, I can't do any more of this. It was monumentally... I don't like to shit on movies. I really, really don't. So I'll say this. The premise of this movie, and I don't care if I get it too much into spoilers because I haven't seen the whole thing, but the premise of this movie is it's three years later and Charlie Brewster has been convinced by psychiatrists that everything that happened was all in his imagination and that vampires aren't real. 
And he has now been cured and he's going back. He's in college. And essentially, he believes that nothing happened. Roddy McDowell plays is back as Peter Vincent. Peter Vincent is still thoroughly convinced that everything really did happen. Where this movie goes wrong is it immediately six minutes into the film establishes that vampires are still very much real and still very much in this world. And where I think the film did a disservice was it would have been really interesting to play on the idea that maybe all of this was in Charlie's head. And it could have been, we could have seen sequences of things happening where Charlie's beginning to suspect that possibly vampires might be real. But the whole time there could have been this big question mark about whether or not everything that happened in the first movie really happened. But no, this movie decides to introduce six or seven vampires within the first six or seven minutes of the movie and completely goes off the rails quickly. So I'm going to ask you, Ashley, have you seen Fright? night part two so i hadn't um until you sent me the link <laughs> um and i i you know i did my due diligence for the podcast i watched the whole thing because you didn't text me to tell me i could stop watching it okay. so i blame you for that dana um, but yeah i mean it's a mess i mean it's definitely a mess i i agree with you i think it would have been interesting to play on this idea of is it or isn't it you know, because if the whole plot of the first is based on kind of a boy who cried wolf thing, if the boy actually did cry wolf and there wasn't ever a wolf there, I think that would have been a fun, a fun exploration. And also, I just didn't buy it. I just didn't buy after we saw everything in the film that somebody could convince him it wasn't real. You know, I, I just didn't buy that concept in the first place. You know, I, I, I didn't get that or why he would even need to go see a, a, a psychiatrist um, when he had people around him that experienced it with him. You, you know what I mean? So. I, I didn't buy the premise from the from the get go. Um, what would I think would have been funnier is him like moving someplace else and then encountering another vampire. That would have made more sense, right? Or you know, Chris Sarandon's sire, or you know, the person his maker came and you know seek vengeance. I mean, that would have made more sense to me than what they did. Um, so I, yeah, I wouldn't. I would give that one a zero stick through the heart, yeah. um, for sure. <laughs> Yeah, I'd give it zero, possibly one, maybe, because Roddy McDowell is still chewing up the scenery, you know, whenever he gets whenever he's on screen. But no, that one, and that's obviously, there's a reason I think that movie is not readily available anywhere, because it's it's not good. Because they uh, don't want it to be. <laughs> that's why. In closing, I'm going to turn it over to your, I want to hear your thoughts on the remake that came out. So, I, I watched the, the remake, and I... I have to say it was a really big disappointment. I, so first of all, okay, I'm a big uh, proponent of not remaking 80s films or 90s films. I believe that most of them have no need to be remade, um, especially movies that were the best of that time. I don't understand this obsession we have as a society to constantly remake what already worked. So already I have an issue with a remake and we've talked about that previously about, you know, what movie really is a solid remake when we talked about RoboCop. But I, you know, I did watch it. Uh, I mentioned earlier, you know, I think Colin Farrell, he looks more like what I would want the vampire to look like, but I don't think he did a good job playing him. And just in general, the script is really bad, which is a huge disappointment because Buffy the Vampire Slayer's Marty Noxon, she actually wrote the script and she's a wonderful writer. And she's part of, you know, the Joss Whedon team that created that whole Buffy verse, which is so smart and witty and, you know, just it's really great TV. And I was very disappointed when I 
when her name came up and I was like, oh no, because I remembered not liking the remake. And that that just bums me out for her. But I do have a quote here that I just want to share, which I think sums up um, everything about the remake. It's actually from, uh, you know, Holland, the original director of the, of the first one. In 2015, Tom Holland was asked about his thoughts on the remake. And this is what he said. And I agree with him. He said, kudos to them on every level for their professionalism, but they forgot the humor and the heart. They should have called it something other than Fright Night because it had no more than a passing resemblance to the original. What they did to Jerry Dandridge and Peter Vincent was criminal. Smiling, he added, outside of that, it was wonderful. (laughs) (laughs) And I think that's all that really needs to be said about the remake. Excellent. All right. Well, Ashley, we're going to go ahead and wrap things up for this episode. Episode. We've got many more to come down the road. And if people want to follow you on social media. Uh, yeah, you can follow me at, at Ashley Schlafly. And I just want to thank all you vampire fans out there. When we started floating this, we got so much positive feedback. And we listened to you because we got DMs and we got comments about how each one of these films is like your favorite vampire film. And I hope that you guys are going to join us on this whole journey because we want to pay as much, you know, respect and give homage to each of these films that that all of you love all of us vampire lovers out there. So I'm excited to go on this journey with you guys and let us know what you thought of Fright Night. Let's keep the conversation going. Yeah. And it's, you know, I think it's worth pointing out that, you know, we made the decision to, we were initially, this was just going to be about a two hour or two part look at, you know, the evolution of the vampire film. And we made the decision that instead of just doing all of them in one quick episode, why not we spend a little time talking about each one of them? Because like you pointed out, each of these movies that we're going to be talking about, it's somebody's favorite vampire film. And, you know, we decided we didn't want to gloss over, you know, a lot about what makes each film special to, to each person. So I'm excited to continue this journey. And I don't know how long it's going to go on for. We don't have, we've decided we, we, we don't have it mapped out as far as how many episodes. It's we're going to do a movie, then we're going to do another one, then we're going to do another one. And we've, when we finally feel like we're done, will be done. So the next episode we will be looking at will be 1987's The Lost Boys, which is a personal favorite of mine. And I've got plenty to say about that. Spoiler alert, I had the soundtrack on cassette tape and would play it religiously in my car when I was a junior in high school. And I'll talk a little bit more about that on the next episode. Oh yeah, cue up your cry little sister, guys, because it is it is coming. Kiefer, Kiefer's coming. <laughs> Absolutely. So if you want to follow the show, you can follow us on Twitter at Dana Buckler Show. You can follow us on Instagram at The Dana Buckler Show. You can follow me on Twitter. My personal Twitter page is at Dana Buckler. And if you want to email the show with questions or comments, you can reach out to us at the Dana Buckler Show at gmail.com. All right. So, Ashley, thank you so much. And we're going to talk soon. All right. Sounds good. All right. And my name is Dana Buckler. And thank you so much for listening. <laughs>